So are, do you have a degree in economics? I do not. My degree is in mathematics. So I have a BS in economics, which is probably appropriate. But So then maybe I should be interviewing you. <laughs> no, I doubt that. I, I think I forgot all of that. I'm the worst of both worlds. I'm a lawyer and an economist. I'm Patrick Pacheco, and you're listening to In Good Companies from Cadence Bank, the podcast where we answer the toughest questions facing your business and guide you through the company lifecycle from start to sale and success to succession. Do you remember It's the Economy, Stupid, the rallying cry of the first Clinton campaign? Well, it turns 30 next year, but no matter how old you are, the economy still makes many of us feel stupid. The economy is big and it's confusing, and policies that control it can be even more mystifying than the thing itself. But it's not as scary as it seems, and you don't need an advanced degree to know what's important. If you can understand a few key factors, you can adapt your business to whatever the economy throws your way. Our guest today explains those factors for a living. Tell Alessio is a treasurer at Cadence Bank. It's his job to study changes in the economy and fiscal policy and the effect they'll have on us. We caught up with Tell to learn about common misconceptions, monetary policy, and why he's hopeful about our current economic situation. So right off the bat, let's, let's kind of define our terms, Tell. When we reference the economy, what are we talking about? When I think about the economy, we think about really production, distribution, and consumption of goods and services. We're talking about the things that we all do day in and day out to produce for our families and for our community, as well as the services that we consume, not just the goods and the commodities, but more specifically also the services that we do. So what wouldn't fall under the economy as far as measuring? What might be a double counting or something that just doesn't fall under the definition of economy? Really, I think about when you think about capital markets, so like equity markets and fixed income markets, these are, these are markets that allow capital to flow, and they're almost a derivative of the actual economy. They're representative of asset values, but they're not the actual economy's behavior. They're more an opportunity for capital to flow efficiently throughout the economy, but they don't actually, they're not representative of the economy itself. So when you th- think about equity markets with, with the S&P or the Dow, or you think about what bond funds are doing or municipal funds, those aren't actually the economy. They're a market representative of how the economy might be doing. But the economy itself is the supply and demand structure that's allowing those companies and those investments to yield fruit. So that's why sometimes the market seems a little bit out of sync with the the economic conditions. Entirely. The other piece of that is that the markets typically anticipate or at least have a perspective to anticipate. And sometimes those anticipations aren't accurate. For some of our listeners that don't have a background in finance or economics, what are some of the factors that help us evaluate the health of the economy, both locally, nationally, and, and globally? Yeah, we, we lose a lot of economic data for that. So that's unemployment rates, uh, job openings, job losses, gross domestic product is probably the most common measure of growth of an economy and the size of an economy. And then we really look at inflation rates. So what are prices doing? Those are kind of the pillars of how healthy an economy is. There's plenty of misconceptions floating around there about the economy. Chief among them, inflation. So inflation sometimes is a four-letter word. I mean, I think it's, if you think of it this way, it allows you to move up to a more expensive neighborhood without ever moving. I mean, I guess that's a, that's a positive of inflation, but what is inflation? Is it always a bad thing? Uh, 
is deflation a good thing? What, fill us in a little bit on, on inflation and how we should think about it. So inflation really has to be held in context. When you think about inflation, it's really about purchasing power and quality of life. If prices of goods and services are moving up in price faster, in other words, inflation is having a bigger impact there than it is, say, on wages, on what people are paid, then you're losing purchasing power and it, it feels like the inflation is impacting your life in a negative way. However, in a lot of cases, we're for individuals that have assets, they can kind of benefit from an inflationary environment because typically those assets are financed with debt and when prices of assets increase, the debt does not increase in value. There's a kind of common misconception that all inflation is bad, and that's not necessarily the case. But it is unequal in how it distributes its impact. Employment, I guess that's affected people as well. I've heard the current situation referred to as the great resignation. How has employment affected the economy? Did the economy affect employment or is employment now affecting the economy? So I would say employment affects the economy, and it's really all about participation. And what we've seen over the past couple of years is a serious reduction in the amount of people participating in the economy. By national standards, we've had about a 2 to 3% drop in participation in the labor force. And that's a combination of things. It's partly demographics. We've got an aging workforce, so we have more people retiring. And then we've also got some cultural changes happening, more people preferring to stay home, caring for family members, caring for families or elderly. Add on to that some other cultural changes that we just aren't sure what is going to happen yet, like young adults living at home who have kind of postponed their participation into the workforce. There's those kind of cultural things that are also happening. And what we're really trying to, what I'm trying to understand as we get through this uh, cycle is do we actually, can we attract those workers back to the labor force so that we have growth in our economy? You made my heart skip a beat there, Tell, because I have a 12-year-old and a 16-year-old. I'm hoping they don't follow suit with the rest of the young adults that are apparently staying at home. We talked a little bit about what makes an economy healthy. So I wanted to know, how does ours stack up right now and more importantly, down the line? Yeah, in my opinion, healthy economies are ones that provide equal opportunity participation. And that's where individuals have valued work to do and they're rewarded commensurately. We need efficient and stable supply chains and we need efficient allocation of capital. And that typically comes with transparency. And so I would say the U.S. in general is a pretty healthy economy in most normal environments. You know, most have said that the Great Recession that we saw in 2008 really took a long time to recover. And we started to see that recovery sort of the couple years before COVID hit, which kind of reset us back down into a different environment. But I kind of like to look at long-term trends. And I think in the long-term trend, the U.S. economy is still very competitive on a global scale and is providing that opportunity. I think what's challenging is that the economy is so well-developed and we have such a complex skills requirement and change is so constant in our economy that the transfer of skills and the continued training that's required throughout a career now is kind of what's putting a little bit of a dampener on how successful we could be long term. And that's where I think we need to make some investments to be sure that we maintain that competitive edge and, and keep the economy healthy. 
does every economy, has every generation faced the same things or is the economy today different? Everybody probably thought theirs was different, but things such as artificial intelligence and the amount of outsourcing that goes on and you always hear about the wealth gap, has that significantly changed the way this economy functions? There's a, an adage that came out of the technology industry called Moore's Law, which kind of talks about the rate of change and how fast, and it's really related to the speed at which we developed processor chips, that each time they went back to process a chip, it, they were able to double the processing speed faster and faster and faster. And that same perspective has kind of been brought to the larger economy in a lot of different ways. When you have things like the internet, it is different for this generation. I think dramatically. And back to that skills issue, that skills transfer, it's pretty easy if you're a construction worker to go work in a restaurant. But if you're a computer programmer and you get outsourced to India or to China for your job, it's more difficult for you then to turn around and become a bioengineer or a chemical engineer. That takes a continued skills transfer that's longer term and not always as easily adopted by the labor market. With something as big as the economy, it's not always clear who's in charge. There's the Fed, Congress, the president, maybe Alexander Haig. I asked Tell, when it comes to economic policy, who's driving the bus? Yeah, the Federal Reserve Board is driving the bus on monetary policy. The Fed governors are appointed by the president, well, they're nominated by the president, and then they're confirmed by the Senate. And so in the context of who gets on the board, there's obviously influences from the executive and legislative branches. However, the Fed is really an independent institution once those governors are established. And they set that policy, that monetary policy. People who are on that board are educators, they're practitioners, and they serve with a dual mandate, which is full employment, and price stabilization. That's the Fed's mandate. And I think that they do that in conjunction with fiscal policy, so Congress spending that gets through the House and the Senate. And when you put those two things together, they clearly talk and operate for the best interests of the economy and the country. But at the same time, a lot of times when when we have an environment like today where maybe the Congress is not as readily open to working with one another, They kind of leave the Fed out there without the fiscal backing they need. That's the environment where I think the Fed has a lot more leeway to take action because we don't have the same fiscal response. So how does the Fed do this? I mean, what tools do they have available to actually control or actually drive monetary policy? So they really have a couple of different transmission mechanisms is what I'll call them. Uh, Interest rates, the first one, they set a rate of interest that banks can deposit money with them. What's critical about that is that interest rate then is a risk-free rate of interest that kind of level sets all the other investments that investment returns that an investor would require. And so that's probably their primary, or at least historically has been their primary transmission mechanism. They've always had this communication driver where they, they announce what they think is going to happen and that helps craft their message about where the economy should be going and encouraging the markets to kind of follow suit and get people on board with that predictive behavior. I want to pause and give just a little explainer on these interest rates. 
The Federal Reserve sets interest rates for what banks can earn on any overnight deposits with them of excess cash they had on hand. This in turn helps banks determine their interest rates for loans to customers. When the economy is struggling, the Fed often lowers interest rates to make it easier for people to borrow money, which keeps people buying homes and starting businesses and generally stimulates the economy. So struggling economy equals lower interest rates. Recovering economy often equals higher interest rates. Okay, back to tell. So communication is the second. And then what they really expanded dramatically or really initiated and expanded in the Great Recession was this quantitative easing policy whereby they actually purchase investments in the open market through their open market operations. And by buying bonds in the market, they're able to further bring down rates on risk-free assets or less risky assets. And that uh, helps to not only level set investors' expectations about what a return should be and provides financing that's much more affordable, it also creates money supply and allows for a freer and more open liquid environment, which is kind of what you want during a crisis. Now, during the COVID response, they greatly expanded their quantitative easing policy, and they've actually tripled the size of their balance sheet in the process, uh, which is kind of unprecedented. So they initiated that during the Great Recession. They went through three waves of it to recover from the Great Recession, and then they were kind of set for about three or four years. And then once COVID hit, they really ramped up their activities there. It's Patrick cutting in again to give a very quick and dirty explainer on quantitative easing. Quantitative easing is another way the Fed injects money into the economy in times of trouble. If you think about it, you can only lower interest rates so far. Right now in the US, the interest rate is zero to 0.25%. With quantitative easing, they're in a way printing money for themselves. They then use that money to strategically buy securities and assets on the open market, typically from banks which puts new money into the market. When banks have more money, they're more able to offer long-term loans. And the more banks that have money, the more competitive those loan rates are for borrowers. Of course, there are other reasons, but you'll have to ask Tell about those. The other two mechanisms that I'm gonna mention are kind of, are relatively new and actually in the past year. And they are the reverse repo and the repo programs that the Fed has participated in. They've always had a repo program, but it's been pretty nominal very small, very limited participants. But in the spring, they really opened that up to asset managers and broker dealers, not just banks, and really opened it up to money market funds. And the size of those programs has been driven up pretty dramatically. And it's another way for them to control short-term interest rates. They've set a floor of five basis points and they've set a ceiling of 25 basis points so that they always kind of can control how much cash is gonna earn. One of those reasons they did that is because they're fighting zero rates. Interest rates are, are fickle. And when I say that, because there's a curve, right? So interest rates are not just the front end, which the Fed controls very handedly, but then the longer term interest rates of five years, 10 years. And while the Fed has some influence in that through their quantitative easing program, those rates are really driven, especially the long end, by long-term investors like insurance companies and pension funds who are really looking at what is inflation, what is long-term growth, versus kind of the short-term where the Fed really does have a lot more control on short-term rates. So we have the Fed controlling the short-term, we have pension funds and other big investors controlling the long-term. How much does this policy actually control what the economy is doing? A good bit, quite frankly. Um, for example, if you're an investor, let's just say a bank, and 
your alternative is to try and find an investment that makes the highest return for your shareholder. And you can go to the Fed and you can invest your money. Today, the interest on reserve balances is 15 basis points, so 0.15%. And that is a risk-free investment. Well, then in, in the context of everything else that a bank wants to invest in, the risk that we would take on has to be above that 0.15% interest. So two years ago, when the Fed funds rate was at 2%, and so I could invest at risk-free at 2%, if I wanted to go out and look at a mortgage loan, well, then I would expect the mortgage loan to price well above that 2% rate. Well, today we're at 0.15%. I don't need a mortgage loan to, to be priced as high because my alternative investment is so much lower. And so that's really how they provide a benchmark for lower cost financing in the environments where they want borrowers to be able to borrow cheaply. The Fed often does its most public work in times of crisis. So what have they done recently when outside forces threaten the economy? When the 2008 recession happened, the Fed knew that they didn't have enough tools in their toolbox. And so after 2008, they kind of developed a whole bunch of additional programs for the next crisis. And when COVID came in, they basically pulled that tool book out and said, let's create these programs. There was a pretty significant announcement in March of 2020 from the Fed. They opened up a host of different lending programs for middle market borrowers, for investment grade borrowers, for so that everyone had access to liquidity. The quantitative easing piece that they increased, we, their balance sheet was about 2.5 trillion when the COVID crisis happened. We're sitting at 8.5 trillion and they're growing a couple hundred billion every quarter. And so they really did the unprecedented in the response to COVID. I liken the quantitative easing story, if you go back through history a little bit, the first global economy or really the first developed economy to work on quantitative easing was the Japanese. They came out with a quantitative easing type of program, as did the EU. They had some moderate success with it, which is why the Fed really used that activity during the 2008 crisis. I think that that was sort of an experimental phase for the Fed. And when COVID struck, they took the opportunity to go all in in that, in that policy. And uh, it clearly settled markets. It's created an awful lot of money supply. Liquidity is exceptionally cheap and available. I think part of the challenge they have now is how do they kind of rebalance to a more normalized operating environment. So these wheels are turning round and round in Washington, but you own a business in Georgia or Louisiana. So as an entrepreneur, how do you keep up with all of this? Yeah, there's a lot of change, like I said, in our policy behaviors, whether it's tax policy or fiscal policy. I would say one of the most important things is to read critically. I benefit and am blessed with an awful lot of research, and I, we get covered by nearly 30 broker-dealers. We have five or six economic research pieces that we get we, daily, if not weekly. And so I get a lot of, we get a lot of content on my team, and we're able to kind of digest a lot of information. But what's important about that is understanding the perspective that that information comes from. You know, government economic releases are generally unbiased. They're just data. There are clearly some calculation methods that people may pick at on how they present data. But in general, th that information is unbiased and, and helpful. 
And then there's a lot of credible publications that have good stories, but you really got to pay attention to what the bias might be or what the implied tint and how they deliver that content. Um, I find that, you know, I, I read a lot of Bloomberg News, a lot of Financial Times, Wall Street Journal, and then those independent economic research. It's helpful to have a variety of opinion and then to be able to kind of distill down what you think is credible and unbiased. I used to tell people, especially 2008, 2009, stop watching the stock shows that are on all day and stop looking at your account every day. How often should business owners be looking at these things? If you look at it every day, it seems like you're going to drive yourself crazy. But how often is enough, but not so much that you're, you're thinking the world's ending tomorrow every single day? These trends don't change fast. The fundamentals of an economy take time to move. And if you're keeping up with it annually, maybe quarterly, but really annually is, is often enough. Especially if you're a, a long-term investor, you're looking at a, re, a retirement plan or something along those lines. Markets, like I said early on, can be kind of fickle. And they're not necessarily, those trends are not, or the, especially the one-off events, are not necessarily related to the fundamentals of the economy. And I think if, you, if you're looking and, and you're a measured investor, annually is frequent enough and quarterly is probably easily the same. It gets down to Bloomberg and the, and the Wall Street Journal and Financial Times. And it's, I've read all this stuff, but how do I interpret it? How do I know what the effect on me is going to be? Are there any resources to help? Yeah, this is a great opportunity to go get coffee with your financial advisor or with your banker. Uh, if you can spend 15 to 30 minutes, they, they usually live and breathe this information like we do. And they can give you some perspective on what you're reading and what you're seeing. And they can really help you interpret what it is that you, you're consuming. I do that with my peers. It's great to read something and understand it and think I have it figured out, but it's always great to bounce it off of somebody else. So I would fully, I would really encourage, especially small business owners who, like you said, with the uh, talking heads on TV about the economy, there's a, there's a lot to consume, but if they can take a few minutes to sit down with their financial advisor, and that will really help them understand what's, what's material and important. Given all of this, how much should economic policy factor into your business? Should it be a daily concern? What's the right balance? Good business models tend to work in almost every environment. And so I would say that in general, what's important is when you're, when you're thinking through your business, don't get overwhelmed by, well, this year we've got a 5% tax increase. But that being said, one policy change shouldn't drive necessarily how you, how you develop or think about your business. You should definitely prepare for those things, whether that's when you issue debt, think about trying to find that in, in, the, in the lower interest rate environments. But what's important about that is making sure that you are looking at what your risks are for your company and how you can mitigate those with the financial instruments that are available to you. I would say that worrying about the economy in the context of your business is really more important on a local level than it is on the national level. How about business life cycle? Is, is there a difference on depending on where you are in the life cycle of your business? If you're thinking about starting a business versus I've just started it and I'm looking for funding versus I'm in the blow it and go in growth stage or I'm getting ready to sell. I mean, is, is there any time where it's more important to, to look or less important to look? Yeah, I would say that this past year, for example, we've had, there's a lot of transactions in the market because valuations are really high. 
because of all the money supply we have. And those, value, those high valuations coupled with the expectation that taxes are gonna increase next year have resulted in a lot of business owners taking the opportunity to sell out or to exit and to capitalize on the investment that they've made. Uh, so I would say that in selling your business, probably timing's more critical because you're looking at a single point in time. When you're starting your business, I think it's less important as long as you have, like I was talking about a local economy, as long as you have the labor market that you need and you've got decent, uh, not too much headwind on your commodity goods and those kind of things, I think then you, you're not as sensitive to it as you are when you're selling the business in the end. Telecom quotes you endless statistics, but as they say, there's liars, damn liars, and statisticians. I wanted to get his honest opinion as someone who thinks about the economy all the time. Let me just ask you about you personally. How are you feeling about the economy? When you wake up in the morning and, and you drink your cup of coffee, and I, I know the first thing you think about is, so how's the economy today and how's it affect Cadence Bank and Telalesio? When you have that conversation with yourself, what are you telling yourself? So I actually feel pretty good about it. I'm not ignorant to the, some of the challenges that we have, especially related to COVID, but I think about where we were before COVID hit, and I'm a true believer in kind of longer term trends, and I think we were headed in the right direction. And I think that once we get through this kind of dip, whether you consider the dip the labor participation issue or the supply chain disruption we've had, once those things kind of flush through in a temporary basis, I think we're really going to be in a pretty solid footing, especially given the amount of fiscal and monetary support that's been brought to bear. And I can say from Cadence Bank's perspective, there's a lot of opportunity out there. Like I said, liquidity is so available. Capital levels are so high that it's just a recipe for a lot of growth on the back end of this COVID experience. The economy can seem overwhelming, but it doesn't have to be. Just understanding a few of the key mechanisms in place can help you come to your own conclusions and help you make the decisions that will be best for your business. And like Tell said, you don't have to do it alone. Talk to your banker or your financial advisor. They're getting information all the time and can break down what it means for you. We started this episode off by saying, it's the economy, stupid. We like to seal it with a kiss. That's keep it simple, stupid. I'd like to thank Tell Alessio, treasurer at Cadence Bank one of the nicest, smartest people I work with here. And that's really saying something. It was my pleasure. Thanks, Patrick. It's always a pleasure to talk with you. It's not always a pleasure, Tell. Come on. (laughs) (laughs) And I'm asking for more interest rate credit. It's not that much of a pleasure. In Good Companies is a podcast from Cadence Bank, member FDIC, equal opportunity lender. Sheena Cochran is our production coordinator. Our executive producer is Danielle Cornell with writing and production from Andrew Gannam and sound design and mixing by Alex Bennett at Lower Street Media. I'm your host, Patrick Pacheco. If you've made it this far and you got something out of the episode, why don't you go out and give us a five-star rating in your podcast app? It's the best thing you can do to help the show grow and reach more people. And join us next week because when you're with us, we're in good companies. This podcast is provided as a free service to you and is for general informational purposes only. Cadence Bank makes no representations or warranties as to the accuracy, completeness, or timeliness of the content in the podcast. The podcast is not intended to provide legal, accounting, or tax advice and should not be relied upon for such purposes. To the extent that this podcast includes predictions about the economy, these predictions are subject to a number of variables and you should confer with your legal, accounting, and tax advisors for their input regarding the possible 
possible outcomes of any economic subject matter discussed herein.